John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 51, verses 19 through 28. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, What baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Eliza, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, whom ye know not. He it is who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethbarba, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Burkett notes, in these verses we have a second testimony which John the Baptist gave of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, saying, Who art thou? That is, the Sanhedrin, or great council at Jerusalem, to whom it belonged to judge who were true prophets, sent messengers to the Baptist to know whether he was the Messiah or not. John refuses to take this honor to himself, but tells them plainly he was his harbinger and forerunner, and that the Messiah himself was just at hand. From hence note, how very cautious and exceeding careful this messenger of Christ was, and all the ministers of Christ ought to be, that they do not assume or aggregate to themselves any part of that honor which is due to Christ, but set the crown of praise upon Christ's own head, acknowledging him to be all in all. 1 Corinthians 3.5 Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed? Observe farther in this testimony of John the Baptist these two things. 1. A negative declaration, who he was not. I am not, says he, the Messiah whom ye look for, nor Elias, nor that prophet you expect. Not Elias, that is, in your sense, not Elias the Tishbite, not Elias for identity of person, but Elias for similitude of gifts, office, and calling. John came though not in the person, yet in the power and spirit of Elias. He denies further that he was that prophet which Moses spake of, Deuteronomy 18.15, nor any of the old prophets risen from the dead. Nay, strictly speaking, he was not any prophet at all, but more than a prophet. The Old Testament prophets prophesied of Christ to come, but John pointed at, showed, and declared a Christ already come, and in this sense he was no mere prophet, but more than a prophet. Two, we have here the Baptist's positive affirmation who he was, namely, Christ's herald in the wilderness, his usher, his forerunner to prepare the people for receiving of the Messiah and to make them ready for the entertaining of the gospel by preaching the doctrine of repentance to them. From hence learn that the preaching of the doctrine of repentance is indispensably necessary in order to the preparing of the hearts of sinners for the receiving of Jesus Christ. Observe lastly, the great and exemplary humility of the Holy Baptist, the mean and lowly opinion he had of himself, 
although John was the greatest among them that were born of a woman, and so much esteemed by the Jews, and had the honor to go before Christ in the exercise of his office and ministry, yet he judges himself unworthy to carry Christ's shoes after him. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Learn hence that the more eminent gifts the minister for the gospel have, and the more ready men are to honor and esteem them, the more will they abase themselves, if they be truly gracious and account themselves highly honored in doing the meanest offices of love and service for Jesus Christ. Thus doth the holy Baptist hear, his shoe latchets I am not worthy to unloose. Verses 29 and 30. And the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he in whom I said, After me cometh a man who is preferred before me. He was before me. Burkett notes, This is John the Baptist's third testimony concerning Christ, in which he points out Christ as the true sacrifice for the expiation of sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God's appointing, to be an expiatory sacrifice, the Lamb of God's election, the Lamb of God's affection, the Lamb of God's acceptation the Lamb of God's exaltation, who by the sacrifice of his death has taken away the sin of the world. The sin, not the sins in the plural number, to denote original sin as some think, or as others, to show that Christ hath universally taken upon himself the whole burden of our sin and guilt. And there seems to be a secret antithesis in the word world. In the Levitical sacrifices, only the sins of the Jews were laid upon the sacrificed beast. But this lamb takes away the sin both of Jew and Gentile. The Lord has caused to meet on him the inequity of all of us. And the word taketh away, being in the present tense, denotes a continued act, and it intimates to us this much, viz., that it is the daily office of Christ to take away our sin by presenting to the Father the memorials of his death. Christ takes away from all believers the guilt and punishment of their sins, the filth and pollution of them, the power and dominion that is in them. As St. John called upon the Jews to behold this Lamb of God with an eye of observation, so it is our duty to behold him now with an eye of admiration and with an eye of gratulation, but especially with an eye of faith and dependence, improving the fruit of his death to our own consolation and salvation. Isaiah 45.22 Look unto me and be saved. Verses 31 through 34. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, that though John the Baptist was a near kinsman of Christ, according to the flesh, yet the providence of God so ordered it, that for thirty years together they did not know one another, nor converse with each other, nor probably ever saw the faces of each other. To be sure, he did not know him to be the Messiah. This, no doubt, was overruled by the wisdom of God to prevent all suspicion. 
as if John and Christ had compacted together to give one another credit, that the world might suspect nothing of the truth of John's testimony concerning Christ, or have the least jealousy that what he said of Christ was from any bias of mind to his person. Therefore he repeats it a second time, verse 31-33, I knew him not. Hence we may learn that a corporal sight of Christ and an outward personal acquaintance with him is not simply needful and absolutely necessary for enabling a minister to set him forth and represent him savingly to the world. Observe, too, the means declared by John which came to know Christ to be the true Messiah. It was by a sign from heaven, namely, the Holy Ghost descending like a dove upon our Savior. He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining, the same is he. Learn hence, one, that Christ, taking upon him our nature, did so cover his glory with the veil of our flesh and common infirmities, that he could not be known by bodily sight from another man, till John had a divine revelation and an evident sign from heaven that Christ was the Son of God, he knew him not. Learn, too, that Christ in his solemn entry upon his office as mediator was sealed unto the work by the descending of the Holy Ghost upon him. He was sealed by the Holy Ghost descending and the Father's testifying that this was his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. Now it was that God gave not of the Spirit to Christ by measure for the effectual administration of his mediatorial office. Now it pleased the Father that in Christ should all fullness dwell. He was filled extensively with all kinds of grace, and filled intensively with all degrees of grace in the day of his inauguration, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Verse 35. Again the next day after, John stood, and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Burkett notes, It is evident that John's disciples were never very willing to acknowledge Jesus for the Messiah, because they thought he did shadow and cloud their master. See, therefore, the sincerity of the Holy Baptist. He takes every opportunity to draw off the eyes of his own disciples from himself and to fix them upon Christ. He saith to two of his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God, as if he had said, Turn your eyes from me to Christ. Take less notice of me, his minister. But behold, you are in my Lord and Master. Behold the Lamb of God. Learn hence that the great design of Christ's faithful ministers is to set people upon admiring of Christ, not magnifying themselves. Oh, tis their great ambition and desire that such as love and respect them and honor their ministry may be led by them to Christ, to behold and admire him, to accept of him, and to submit unto him. John said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. Verses 37 through 44. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He said unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is, being interpreted, the Christ. 
and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, and thou shalt be called Cephas, which is, by interpretation, a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Burkett notes, This latter part of the chapter acquaints us with the calling of five disciples, not to the apostleship, for that was afterwards, nor yet simply by conversion, for some of them were John's disciples already and believed in the Messiah to come, but they are here called to own and acknowledge Jesus Christ to be the true and promised Messiah. The disciples here called were Andrew, Peter, and Philip, mean and obscure persons, poor fishermen, not any of the learned rabbis and doctors among the Jews. Hereby Christ showed at once the freeness of his grace in passing by the knowing men of the age, the greatness of his power, who by such weak instruments could effect such mighty things, and the glory of his wisdom in choosing such instruments as should not carry away the glory of the work from him, but to cause the entire honor and glory of all their great successes to redound to Christ. As Christ can do, so chooses to do great things by weak means, knowing that the weakness of the instrument redounds to the greater honor of the agent. For these persons now called to be disciples were afterwards sent forth by Christ as his apostles to convert the world to Christianity. Observe farther the order according to which the disciples were called. First, Andrew, then Peter, which may make the Church of Rome ashamed of the weakness of their argument for Peter's supremacy, that he was first called, whereas Andrew was before him and Peter was brought to Jesus by him. Andrew findeth his own brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. Such as have gotten any knowledge of Christ themselves and are led into acquaintance with him will be very diligent to invite and industrious to bring in others to him. Peter being brought to Christ, our Savior names him Cephas, which signifies a stone, a rock, to intimate to him his duty to be firm and steady in the Christian profession, full of courage and constancy. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Verses 45 through 47. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there be any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Burkett notes, The last person mentioned in this chapter, who was called to own and embrace Christ for the Messiah, is Nathanael. Who this Nathanael was doth not certainly appear, but it is evident he was a sincere good man, though prejudiced for the present against Christ because of the place of his supposed birth and residence, Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That is, can any worthy or excellent person, much less the promised and long-expected Messiah, come out of such an obscure place as Nazareth is? Whereas Almighty God, whenever he pleases, can raise worthy persons out of contemptible places. Observe farther how mercifully and meekly Christ passes over the mistakes and failings, the prepossessions and prejudices of Nathaniel 
but takes notice of and publicly proclaims his sincerity. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. That is, no guile imputed, no guile concealed, no prevailing guile. It being only true of Christ in a strict and absolute sense that there was no guile found in his lips. But in a qualified sense, it is true of Nathaniel and every upright man. They are true Israelites, like their father Jacob, plain men, men of great sincerity and uprightness of heart, both in the sight of God and man. And whereas our Savior speaks of him with a sort of admiration, behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, we learn that a person of great sincerity and uprightness of heart towards God and man, a true Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed, is a rare and worthy sight. Behold, an Israelite indeed. Learn, too, that such indeed as are Nathaniels need not commend themselves. Christ will be sure to do it for them. Nathaniel conceals his own worth. Christ publishes and proclaims it and calls upon others to take notice of it. Behold, etc. Verses 48 through 50. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. Burkett notes, Observe here how Nathanael wondereth that Christ should know him, having, as he thought, never seen him. Christ gives him to understand that by his all-seeing eye he had seen him, when he was not seen by him. When thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Christ's all-seeing eye is an infallible proof of his deity and Godhead. Christ seeth us whatever we do though we see him not. He seeth the sincerity of our hearts and will own it and bear witness to it if we are upright in his sight. Observe farther how Christ's omnipresence and omnipotence convinces Nathanael that he was more than man, even the Messiah, God and man in two distinct natures and one person. Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Philip called Christ the son of Joseph. Nathanael calls him the son of God. Such as believe Christ's omnipotence will never call in question his divinity. Observe, lastly, how Christ encourages the faith of this new disciple, Nathaniel, by promising him that he shall enjoy further helps and means for the confirmation of his faith than ever yet he had. All that Christ said to him was only this, that he saw him under the fig tree before Philip called him. How ready art thou, O Lord, to encourage the beginnings of faith in the hearts of thy people, and to furnish them with further means of knowledge when they wisely improve what they have received. Never will thou be wanting, either in means or mercy to us, if we be not wanting to thee and ourselves. Verse 51. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Burkett notes, The heavens were opened to Christ, and the angels attended upon him, first at his baptism, Matthew 3, ultimate, then at his ascension, Acts 9. Whether Christ alludes to one or the other, or both, 
I shall not positively say, but gather this note, that the ministry and attendance of the holy angels upon the Lord Jesus Christ in the time of his humiliation was very remarkable. An angel foretells his conception to the virgin, Luke 1.31. An angel publishes his birth to the shepherds, Luke 2.14. In his temptations in the wilderness, the angels came and ministered unto him, Matthew 4.11. In his agony in the garden, an angel is sent to comfort him. Luke 22.42 At his resurrection, an angel rolls away the stone and proclaims him risen to the women that sought him. Matthew 28.6 And at his ascension, the angels attended upon him and bear him company to heaven. And at the day of judgment, he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now thus officious are the holy angels to our blessed Savior, and thus subservient to him upon all occasions. 1. In point of affection and singular love to Christ. 2. In point of duty and special obligation to Christ. There is no such cheerful and delightful service as the service of love. Such is the angel's service to Christ for the services he has done them, he being a head of confirmation to them. 4 that they are established in the holy and glorious state in which they were at first created, is owing to the special grace of the Redeemer. Glorify him, then, all ye angels, and praise him, all his host.